Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Ian Weinberger. If you have been in the room where it happens in New York City, then there's a good chance that Ian was there too. After graduating with a degree in music education from Northwestern, Ian moved to New York City where he worked on several Broadway shows, including Kinky Boots and The Book of Mormon, which eventually led to his current role as the musical director of Hamilton. For today's conversation, I'll be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. I have no doubt that our listeners are very excited to hear everything about Hamilton, but before we get there, why don't you talk to us about what was life like for you growing up and the journey to get to Broadway? I knew really early on that I was musical. I knew that somehow that was going to be a, uh, a big part of my life, a big part of what I was interested in. Um, I was really, really attracted to the piano at a really young age. And we had a piano in the house and there, there's, you know, incriminating photo evidence somewhere of, you know, one year old Ian, six month old Ian or something on the piano bench, just being held up and like plunking away. Um, I'm holding my hands up as if anyone's going to see them. Um, I think, uh, I think it was very clear to me early on that, that I was really attracted to the piano. And I think it was very clear to my parents right away. And they had the, brilliant foresight to put me in some piano lessons. And that was majorly formative for me that, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to public school. So I, I had, I went to a really tiny private school here in the Chicago suburbs. I went to Baker demonstration school, if anybody knows it, which is on the border of Evanston and Wilmette. And I, uh, uh, so there wasn't really a, a big opportunity for music at school. So I got it at home in my my private piano lessons and it came i started when i was three and so really before i had thoughts of any kind or like cognitive cognitive anything of any kind i was getting my brain around the piano i don't remember learning to play i don't remember learning to read music because sort of all of that predates memory for me in a very weird way so you're you're growing up. Uh, you start playing piano at three years old. Uh, did you always want to go into musical theater? Was was that something that growing up you said that's that's what I want to do, or was it something that came it, I was really attracted to it from an early age? It it didn't occur to me that I could do it conceivably uh, till till much later. And I was going to theater in Chicago, like children's theater, especially from a really really young age, and. I was performing in children's theater as a, as a young person, like starting around eight or nine as, as an actor. And I loved the theater environment and did a lot of acting as a kid uh, all the way up basically through high school. Um, and I, it was also in high school where I first discovered playing in the pit orchestra for like the high school musicals. By that time I was also a drummer. I had, I had started playing the drums because there was a kid in my third grade class who was cool and I wanted to be like him and he played the drums. So obviously I had to play the drums in order to be cool. That's how third graders work. And so 
I started uh, taking private drum lessons as well. So now I'm like doing that a lot. And I started focusing more on the drum thing in high school and was taking the drums really, really seriously. And that is, it was high school that I started to focus more and more on being a, a you know, I'm putting serious in air quotes, a serious musician, at least to the extent that you can be in high school, which you can a little bit, you know, there was like the all district thing and the all state thing. And I was doing music intensives over the summers and that sort of thing. And, um, but it was, it was as a drummer, as, as a drummer and percussionist. Yeah. And the piano thing sort of became the side hustle a little bit. And so it was high school that I discovered paid orchestras for the musicals. And that was where I sort of discovered, oh, I can merge these two things. Because I always loved the theater environment, but I always hated being on stage. And I hadn't quite put that together and uh, really until then, that I was just uncomfortable under the lights, being the center of attention, like showing feelings and vulnerability. That was like not it for me at age 12 or, you know, now. And um, the uh, And so I hadn't uh discovered that I could do both that I could be in the theater environment but not have to be on stage so I went to Northwestern I stayed here in Evanston which is where I'm from I was I, I was looking for something really specific I needed to I was going to go to music school by that time I had decided that music was my plan and my uh focus was in music education I decided I wanted to teach high school band so there I am applying to uh to music schools I knew I wanted something of a certain size that had a really good uh, classical program, a really good jazz program, because I was a jazz drummer then. And I knew I wanted something with a marching band. And that made the list uh, pretty small. And I ended up at Northwestern, where the uh, I, I was there, like I said, to, to learn to teach high school band. And I went through the music education sort of pathway uh, for as long as I could. And all that time I was doing shows as a pit musician on the side, just for fun, as a drummer mostly, and then a little bit as a keyboard player. And I had friends who might be music directing or conducting the student musicals, who maybe were a couple years older than me. And I remember sort of those first couple experiences where I'm maybe playing the drums and my friend, the junior or senior is the conductor. And I'm like, well, I could do that. That looks like, that looks like fun. And like, I, I, I don't know, maybe I could do that. And so I started like, picking their brains a lot. And sooner or later, I found myself being the associate music director or the music director on a couple of student musicals around Northwestern and then on the sort of department official musicals around Northwestern. And by the time I finished college, I had worked on, in some capacity, 25 productions. I finished college and the choice was either apply for a teaching job or go into theater. And all my friends in my degree program applied for jobs because that was what we did. And I was the sort of uh, weirdo odd duck that didn't. And I chose theater because I figured if I was ever going to try to make a go of it as a freelancer, I'd better do that soon. And I still had my teaching certificate to fall back on. So Ian, I would say graduating from college, you really, you have a degree, you're supposed to go into whatever line of work that degree's in. And most people just do it to get a job after college so that they can like start to move out, pay back loans, whatever, you know, it is. You definitely did not take the path that was easier. You kind of just took a leap in faith. Can you describe what 
that process was like for you? I can try to. It's so funny. I'm laughing because it feels like 43 lifetimes ago. I think a couple of things happened. The first was sort of the black and white practical part of me that was like that was going through, you know, like I said, you know, I, if I'm going to be a freelancer, I should do it sooner. Like to me and my like type A brain that made sense on paper. Um, I was really lucky with uh, that my parents were so supportive in many ways of the word. Uh, um, but they they were enormously supportive emotionally and they were willing to help me out for, for a minute, which uh, was tremendous on their part. I had put away a little money myself from working on shows at school and a little bit in Chicago before I moved. I, I had made a little bit, you know, no, nobody gets wealthy being a music director, but I, uh, especially not at, you know, 21, 22 years old, but I, I had a little bit of that to go on and uh, I had the, you know, confidence of and very generously some assistance from my parents, which uh, was an enormous, enormous step up and uh, an enormous help. And I'm very, um, I'm very grateful for that. I think, you know, moving to New York was a big, uh, a big step for me because I had never moved, never left Evanston. I had lived my entire life, you know, up in, in the suburb here. And uh, I knew that most of the theater that was being made that I wanted to be a part of was happening both either in Chicago or in New York. And I moved to New York because I had never lived anywhere else. I felt like I knew Chicago and I loved Chicago. So many of my friends were still in Chicago and I felt like I could do that. But similarly to the, you know, to the job of it all, I was like, may as well try New York first. The dream job was to conduct on Broadway someday. And I didn't really know how to do that, how to go about it, what the pathway was or how long it might take. Um, but the goal was, I sort of, I remember sort of arbitrarily setting myself, uh, not so much a deadline, but a benchmark of if I can in five years, either conduct on Broadway or be, you know, I gave myself a lot of wiggle room or be like on my way <laughs> to, you know, or like, you know, have a, you know, I don't know what I was doing. Um, that was the sort of goal that I set up for myself. So you land in New York, right? You find an apartment. It's not a typical job where you show up in the office one day. What, also what not next? a typical. What, what happens when you, when you get to New York? Um, the, uh, it's also not a typical job in that you don't apply for it. You don't, um, you, there are job listings to search kind of, but not really in any sort of way that most of the world functions. Uh, there's also not really, depending on what it is, there's usually not that much of an interview process to go through either to, to explain. It depends a little bit on the world that you're in, but in musical theater anyway, for people who want to conduct and music direct, especially almost all of it is word of mouth. Uh, there is, there are sometimes auditions to be had depending on what the gig is. And that, as we discussed a little bit earlier, has to do with skill and playing and, and, uh, being specifically right musically for the job. But most of the time, uh, people need to find you and people need to know you a little bit. So that makes sort of the, the deep dive, even that, or the dive into New York, even that much kind of scarier in a way that in hindsight, I'm like, I would never do something like that. And it, it terrifies me to, to think about moving to New York so blindly. Um, but 
the the theater community in New York is actually very small. Uh, it's a company town. And then part of the reason that is true is that unlike any other city in the country, the bulk of New York theater, and at, at least Broadway, is made in a five block radius. And, you know, you go to the Starbucks and you see 12 people, you know, it's a very weird scenario. Uh, and so I've always said to people, once people find out about you, the word travels very fast. And so I found my New York apartment. I moved in with a friend from college and he was the one, the roommate who actually got me my first gig, which was as, excuse me, I was the music intern on the Broadway revival of Anything Goes. This is 2011 and the show starred uh, Sutton Foster and Joel Gray. And he, my roommate, was working for the producer and had heard through the grapevine they need a music intern and recommended me. And I interviewed uh, with the with the stage manager and there I was. And I found myself at the first day of rehearsal. Um, I didn't really super know what a music intern was or what a music intern was supposed to do. A version of a music intern job or music assistant job as it's more commonly known now on and off for about four years on, on different shows. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You sit in the corner of the rehearsal room and you try to stay out of the way and uh, you, you do nothing and everything. And most of the time, what the job requires is um, being at the computer, keeping the actual score, the sheet music up to date as the show changes in rehearsal. Let's say we cut four bars from the introduction, uh, then we need to update the score. Or maybe we change the harmony lines, or maybe the dialogue in the middle changed so the music has to get shorter. And maybe we take the whole thing up a step or whatever it might be. Your job is to keep all that music uh, current and distribute it and make sure all the actors have it and all the music department has it. And really it's a great way to sit and watch the pros work. Uh, I remember being, you know, struck by two things. One, that everybody was really smart and that everybody was, you know, top of their game, uh, in, you know, incredibly talented on all sides of the ball, actors on stage, music directors that I wanted to be orchestra in the pit, the stage managers, the crew, everybody was super, super, you know, a one, um, I also remember, okay, so three things. I also remember noticing that everybody was so nice, uh, which was awesome and surprising a little bit, uh, but every, everybody was so friendly. And um, there I was like, you know, 20 whatever years old and, and I was expecting, you know, to be the people waiting on the people and everybody was, was incredibly kind. And the third thing I remember noticing right away was that, um, the process itself of making the show was no different than what I was used to. Um, obviously, it's on a very different level, right? Like this is the pros of the pros making a Broadway show. But in terms of the way things tick and how things have to work, and uh, I remember from the first day being in that music rehearsal being like, okay, this is just a music rehearsal. Altos, here are your notes. Sopranos, here are your notes. This is like exactly the thing I had done in college just for no money and for, you know, uh, on a very different kind of playing field. And that was really uh, energizing in a big way that like, okay, there's not a secret sauce. These people don't know the nuclear codes. There's not like anything different that they do. They're just better. Pause on that because we've, every guest we talk to has the same feeling of 
am I good enough? Yes. At the level I'm at like that insecurity. Um, and I hope our listeners realize like if they ever feel like it, it's totally normal. Everyone else in the room feels the exact same way. Um, can you discuss how you work on that? How did you like accept it, realize it and just say, no, like I am supposed to be here. Start by saying I'm still working on it. I think, um, most artists I know worth their salt are going to be the first ones to tell you how untalented they are. Um, and most of the time, I don't think that comes from a place of false humidity, humility, humidity. I don't, I think, I don't think it comes from anything fake. I think it just comes from, um, caring so much about what you do that you see, uh, you see the flaws first. And I'm sure this applies to places outside the arts. I'm sure the athletes you've talked to are the same way and even outside of anything that's performing related. I think, um, the imposter syndrome is so real, is so real. And I'm like a poster boy for it. I, I showed up to the first several years of Hamilton every day expecting to be fired. And it wasn't until, God, I don't know, year three, maybe even late year three, year four of Hamilton, where I really started to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of okay at this. Like, I, I, I feel confident enough that I know things. And a lot of that had to do, honestly, as much with external factors as it did internal. Like by the time our show got so big that I was responsible for teaching other music directors how to do what I do, I started to gain that confidence in that way by, by realizing, oh, okay, well, people are coming to me with questions and I'm giving them the answers because I know them. That must mean I know things. I took a really, really long time before I could walk into the building and feel like, uh, like I own a small piece of it that I, that I feel comfortable in those, in those shoes. Um, and I think, you know, Mallory, your question's a good one. I, it's something that I have struggled with, uh, for a really, really long time. And I think knowing that everybody in the room also feels that way is very helpful and is a reminder that it's, that it's not just you. And I, I, I've been to a lot of therapy and I think, uh, I also found myself earlier in my, early in my career as the youngest person in the room and the person in charge. And that was a lot to deal with. And I will also say not to, not to jump around too much, but there were times in my, in my Broadway career before Hamilton and then including Hamilton, where I found myself as a substitute conductor, where not only am I the youngest person in the room and not only am I in charge at that particular performance as the conductor, but I'm also a substitute and the whole orchestra knows this music better than I do. And they've all been here for years and years and years. And I just got here and now I have to tell them what to do. And there's a lot there. And that took some years to unpack of like being comfortable in that dynamic of just sort of walking in as a 20 whatever year old feeling okay with saying hey uh or is everybody ready because we're going to begin that 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 was a big hill to climb so you were a a music intern yeah and, i'm uh, sorry i yap so much you didn't know what you great. were getting into by absolutely. inviting me on this podcast absolutely great we tune in it. next week for part four of ian's interview <laughs> we love it so your music intern mm. uh you recognize that this is something, hey, it's not that unfamiliar from what I've, I've done before. How do you take that leap from a guy, you know, 
making notes for somebody else to being the guy? What's, what's that, what's that next step? What's that progression from music intern to what? Yeah. The, the Broadway music world, it, it, that next step happens in a very particular sort of way. And it's not always the same for everybody. People find their way as a music director in a bunch of different paths. For me, it was around the time I was doing all these music intern jobs, starting with Anything Goes and then a bunch of others, I was also working out of New York at regional theaters around the country on, on smaller productions. And the reason that's useful and that was relevant for me is that I could, it was, I could alternate being small fish, big pond with being big fish, small pond. And so I could watch the pros work at something like Anything Goes and see how they do it and then go to wherever in some small theater in the middle of nowhere and wasn't always the middle of nowhere, but some small theater and be in charge and sort of try it out and try the new things I'd learned and fail and try again. And the next step that you ask for came after uh, I was the music intern uh, on a show called Chaplin, which ran on Broadway for like four months in 2012. And I loved Chaplin and uh, I may have been in the minority, but I loved it. And uh, it, I was the music intern on that show. And as a thank you for the work I did, the music director had offered me a chance to sub as a keyboard player in the orchestra. And in Broadway speak, uh, subbing is is sort of the way that you find yourself in as a, as a player. It's sort of your the, the chance to get the foot in the door as as a musician is by being a substitute for someone else there's a whole culture of subbing on broadway as a musician which is worth its own podcast because it's all very strange but um but the long and the short of it is if you go see a broadway show the musicians in the playbill are probably not all the musicians in the playbill or, or not probably not all the musicians in the pit uh there's for every musician in the playbill there's five or ten or more musicians that know their part and can jump in uh, on a nightly basis. And so that's sort of your way that you get into the, the I don't know, in, into the, the, the flow. That's sort of your way that you find your way into the system is by is by being a sub. And so there I was, and I, I got a chance to play the keyboard part for a handful of shows. And it was my first time playing on Broadway. And to our earlier conversation, I was horrified. Like I was just trying to stay afloat. And I remember being horrified by by that feeling partly because when you're a sub as a very quick aside when you're a sub musician you don't get rehearsal you're expected to go home and study the music and practice 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 and you might get a recording or a video of the conductor to like practice along with so there i am like in my living room doing imaginary performances of chaplin and then i show up and you do it and it's horrifying and um but being a sub on chaplin gave me the sort of uh credibility to start subbing around on other shows. And that was sort of where things really started to blossom is that I had this sort of feather in my cap from subbing on Chaplin and a couple friends I had met and become sort of friendly with the music staff on the show Kinky Boots. Uh, and that had just opened in New York. And so I went to them and said, hey, any chance you will need another keyboard sub? I was, which was an email that took me, I swear to God, hours to write. Uh, but you know, it's the same thing we're talking about is like, I had no percent of the con confidence of, Hey, I'm going to walk in here and do a great job. You know, not, not at all, but, uh, they, I started subbing there as a keyboard player. And then eventually I started subbing there as a conductor 
which was my first time getting to conduct on Broadway, which was the goal, which was the dream job is, is getting a chance to conduct a Broadway show. And this was Kinky Boots? This was Kinky Boots. So this would have been summer of 2014. And uh, I had moved to New York right at the end of 2010. And so I, I had beat my goal by like a year and a half, which I was really excited about. And uh, I spent the entire show making sure that I would get back, asked back a second time, uh, which I was. And I got to conduct there quite a bit, which was amazing and um, was so fun. And I, I was at Kinky Boots a lot and I loved that show and loved that family. And um, Kinky Boots shares a musical boss with the Book of Mormon. So I found myself at the Book of Mormon before long and now I'm juggling those two shows. And now I started subbing at a handful of other places as a keyboard player. And pretty soon I, I found myself really busy, um, which happened in the blink of an eye. And so, so one thing I find interesting about this is actually you needed somebody to give you a break, right? Your, your break was being a substitute on a show that lasted for four months and nobody, we never heard of it. Uh, but, but that was your break, right? Sometimes it's that smallest foot in the door that then led to everything after that. And I, th I think that's, that's wonderful. Thanks. I, I, I realized too, that there's, there's an important part of, of the, of the thread that I, that I haven't said yet, which uh, I usually lead with when I'm talking to young musicians, when I like go to speak to like a, a, a high school band or something. Uh, and that is that the first thing that happened before the music intern job was that I sort of half knew a couple of older, I'm putting older in air quotes just so they don't get mad at me, um, uh, music directors who had gone to Northwestern and I sort of halfway knew them both. They were like uh, a, a handful of years and a handful of years older than me. And they both did that dream job. And I took them both to coffee as soon as I got to New York. And I was like, what do I do? I'm here, now what? And they were both very sweet and very kind and asked me a zillion questions about who am I and what do I want to do and who, who do I want to meet? And one of the first people that they introduced me to was this woman, Emily Grishman, who is a music copyist, which without boring anybody is, is basically a music editor. She's in charge of uh, uh, the physical sheet music that exists for the orchestra and basically editing it and uh, being the liaison between the orchestrator who writes it and the musicians themselves. She's worked on about 140, 150 Broadway shows. She's a like legend of, of Broadway music. I just knew her uh, uh, and met her and we stayed in touch a lot. And I ended up crossing her desk quite a bit because she often worked on all the shows that I was the intern for. And so she sort of kept checking in with me. How's your career? How, what, how's things? Da, 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 da. I ended up working for her for, for a handful of years on and off in her office. It was her that not only brought me on board with the Kinky Boots people right away, but it was also her that first introduced me to my Hamilton boss. Because uh, he, his name is Alex Lacamoire, he was looking for somebody for a project, which I'll come to in a second. And he, uh, she was the one who recommended me for that. And she was like this big champion of my career in a way that she did not have to be at all. And the reason I bring her up, uh, because you asked the question, is that from here, where we are today in 2020, I can draw a straight line from those first coffees that I had with those two guys to Hamilton. Like it, it's a direct thread because they introduced me to Emily, Emily introduced me to Alex and I worked at Hamilton. 
And of course, at the time, it didn't feel like anything was happening. It felt like I had thrown out 25 possibilities and maybe two of them came back. Um, and of those two, I got a gig and then nothing happened after that. And, and so the hindsight element is really strong because the thread looks very linear from here. But at the time, you know, the freelance thing, like you don't know what's going on. Ian, talk to us about those times when you felt like you didn't show up 100% or you didn't put on the best show. How do you get back up? I know that when I was younger, and I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to it, when I experienced the feeling of failure, whether that was like big or small, sometimes it would be hard for me to rebound um, and get that confidence back. But you're putting on shows multiple times a day, six days a week. Tell us, how do you pick yourself back up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that makes theater such an interesting environment is two things i think uh okay three is that it's a little high stakes and and if not high stakes just high octane right like there is uh before the show opens there's an opening night on the calendar and the thing is gonna open on december 15th whether we like it or not and so we we have to get it together by then and there's a hard and fastness to that um and that forces people to lock in and um what that ends up meaning usually is that people rise to the occasion most of the time right but a lot of the time uh that breeds a lot of tension and stress and uh it can be a hotbed of like whatever happens um and so i think that's that's one piece the other thing that that theater does that's unique is that it's once it's open excuse me once the show opens it's repeated daily and uh the show that you do on wednesday on paper is the same that you do on thursday but you have to uh do it all over again and i have had performances certainly individual performances that are far worse than the next you know and i've, I've had shows where like i feel like i can't get anything happening at the keyboard or as a conductor nothing clicks you know, nothing is together. The drummers, you know, making faces at me. I don't know. The the, the bass players making faces at me. Uh, that I, I just, I can't, I, I'm not playing well and I'm in my own head. And I just, uh, that happens a lot. And it took a really long time for me to get used to the idea that the next day uh, we can start from zero and we can all try again. We get another chance. Um, I think... Uh, our director of Hamilton is a guy named Tommy Kale, who is uh, incredible and and this very, very brilliant man. And he, uh, one of the things that he says that I love is that theater people, uh, he likens us to chefs um, because just like in a restaurant, you go to the restaurant, you've read the review, maybe you've seen the pictures of the food, all your friends have told you, you got to go eat at such and such a thing. But then someone shows up and you still have to make the meal from scratch. You know what I mean? Just because somebody said the food is good doesn't mean it's going to be good the next day. Unlike, let's say, a painting or God knows a movie. 
or television. Nothing against those media, but like you complete the work of art and then it's finished. And in theater, uh, you have to start again every day. And uh, that is at once inspiring and also like totally dehumanizing because uh, you have like a really, really good show on Thursday and then you walk in on Friday and you have to do it all over. And um, that uh, that wears you down in in many ways. It seems like with entertainers and artists that the words passion and obsession very much become interchangeable. Do you think that there is a difference between the two? And if so, can they coexist? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I will fully, fully own up to being obsessive in that way. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've like, you know, I found myself lying awake at night, not sleeping because of what the tenors are doing in the room where it happens and how to fix it or whatever it might be. And um, if I'm not careful, I really eat and breathe and sleep and drink Hamilton. And uh, I had to really learn like, it's okay not to do that. Um, but I think that is true for me. There's a, there's an and coming. That's true for me on sort of whatever the project is. If I've got a side thing that's about to open that isn't Hamilton, uh, I feel I definitely recognize myself being consumed by it in 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 that late stage. And I think that's true for a lot of us. Um, certainly all the professions that you mentioned, but theater people, I think especially, we get very, because we're so project to project, you know, we open a show, we close a show, we go to the next show. You close a show, we go to the next show. And so you will find in any group of theater people, of people that are obsessed with the project that they're currently doing. How, how did you get connected to Hamilton? It sounds like you can point that direct line, but walk us through somebody coming to you and saying, or uh, you applying, or uh, however it worked out, how did you get in touch with the Hamilton folks? Yeah. So my boss on the show is a guy named Alex Lackamore, who is the music supervisor of Hamilton. I was the biggest fan of his because of his work on In the Heights. He was the music supervisor and conductor and orchestrator of that show, and uh, which I had seen while I was in college. And I was a big, big fan of his. I knew every note of that album. And he was, he had, uh, come to me for a couple of things in the years prior, um, all of which were recommended. Uh, my name had been recommended by this woman, Emily, that I mentioned before. In this particular case, he was doing a workshop of a new musical that didn't have a title yet. And he uh, was looking, it was just going to be one week long, and he was looking for somebody to basically be his associate music director. Um, the show later got the title Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, which which opened on Broadway in 2016. It's this beautiful, beautiful musical that he happens to also be the music supervisor of. He's a very busy man. And um, he hired me to be his associate music director. And um, I fell in love with Dear Evan Hansen uh, even before we had started. He, we because we didn't know each other, we had like a quick phone call and he wanted to know my playing and uh, and how I, how I, was as a musician so he sent me i remember two songs from the show to just like learn it at home and send him back just an iphone voice memo and uh i did and he must have been extremely desperate because about a, a day later he wrote back and and offered me the gig and he uh and so i learned the show very quickly 
and we did this one week of Dear Evan Hansen together where I was his associate. And like I said, fell in love with Dear Evan Hansen, fell in love with that cast, with that team. And um, excuse me, I wanted very deeply to be a part of the show as it moved forward. Right around that time, he was about to start rehearsal for Hamilton at the Public Theater. And all I knew about Hamilton was that it was Lynn Miranda's next thing. And uh, and it was about the Treasury Secretary. And it was a rap musical. I don't know. And um, the only story that I think is worth talking about very quickly about Dear Evan Hansen is that there's a particular moment I remember where uh it's a new musical right and what that what that ends up meaning is that actors have to learn music that they've never heard before and so it is your gig as a music director or in my case an associate to be the person to teach them that music and to sit with them one-on-one -on -one or maybe in a group and and like i said earlier like altos here are your notes or whatever it is and and teach them how the song goes brand new song and um i remember there was a moment of our rehearsal process where alex is at the piano teaching the song and there's a knock on the door and it's and it's Lynn. And of course I knew who Lynn was. And um uh he and Alex turns to me and says, Hey, can you jump in? I have to go out and talk to Lynn for a second. And da, da, da. and so they do. And I continue picking up where he left off, just teaching. And I was a good teacher, right? Like I had done all my teaching in college as as first of all an education person, but doing shows in college. And like that was that was and kind of remains my superpower, is I'm like good at teaching music to actors. And he comes back in the room and I give him huge credit for this because any person could have returned and like shooed me off the piano bench and gone back to work and said, okay, I'm back. Here we are. And to his credit, he like pulled up a chair in the back of the room and just let me continue. And, uh, I remember clocking right away. Oh shit. This is my audition. Uh, is, is he's going to watch me teach. And it turned out to be true. Uh, and, because what ended up happening was uh, I pestered him and pestered him about Dear Evan Hansen for months. It was, hey, uh, you know, I noticed that Dear Evan Hansen is going to happen at Washington, D.C., at Washington, D.C., at the arena stage in Washington, D.C., and if you need any help, I'm around and would love to be a part of it. And he wrote back very kindly, thanks so much, I think I'm all set, you know, whatever. Cut to... Hamilton uh, announces their Broadway transfer from the off-Broadway production. And I wrote him again and I said, hey, you know, you're all set, but do you need any help with Dear Evan Hansen? And by the way, congratulations on Hamilton. Can't wait to see it someday. Never, whatever. And uh, he once again wrote back, thanks so much. I think I'm all good. Uh, I really appreciate it. And then he wrote me back like three days later. I had already sort of decided, hey, I'm never working for him again. He was very kind. And he wrote me back and said, actually, we do need somebody at Hamilton at the public, like to start right away. And what are you doing right now? And uh, I fully believe that had I not been pestering him about Dear Evan Hansen, that I would never have come across his radar. Like I'm, I'm certain it was a right place, right time scenario. What he needed was somebody to be an extra teacher. He needed uh, someone to learn the show in like a week so that they could turn around and teach it to the understudies at the public. Uh, because the understudies knew their ensemble parts, but didn't know the roles that they were understudying. And so that was my gig. Uh, I, I started at the public theater off Broadway one-on-one -on -one with that ensemble as, as a teacher of those, of those roles. So Hamilton is unique, uh, relative to the other shows that you had done. Um, you, you hadn't done in the Heights. You, you have a musical theater 
big background, but it's it, it's rapped. How did you teach the songs in, in that form? Yeah, it's a very good question. The thing that I had going for me was that I had gone through my hip hop phase as a younger person, like the late 90s, early 2000s were my entire life at that time, right? Like I was I was a big TRL kid in 1999, 2000. Mallory knows. And um, the uh, it, it, I so like that was the history of that music that I at least had internalized a little bit. The rest of the details of the hip hop and rap style, I ended up actually learning much later in my journey with the show, because the thing that I knew how to do was to take a piece of music and then make something sound like that piece of music. Uh, whether or not I knew the details of the, even necessarily the reference or the kind of intricacies of the delivery or the kinds of the style that Lynn was trying to get across that I all that I learned later on in a very osmosis kind of way. In those early days, really my entire gig and it sounds it's much more benign than that was really just to get notes and rhythms to be correct. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot, whatever it may be, right? And so I would sit one on one and somebody would would sing with me and I would teach them how to rap or I would teach them what those rhythms are, I should say. And then I would teach them what those notes are and they would sing it back to me or rap it back to me and I would either say yes or no. And um, that was really the extent of it was it was entirely, dare I say, black and white because I my gig was to teach what I saw. And um, had I been asked to do a lot more in terms of teaching the, the intricacies of that style, I probably would not have been the right person for it at the time uh, because I learned a lot on the gig. I learned a lot by asking questions and listening and then hearing 25 different people play Aaron Burr uh, and understanding like what makes that role work. Um, Ian, when I think about Hamilton, the other musical that comes to mind is Rent. Both were, well, both are wildly fresh and distinctive, as well as they both signaled Broadway's greater acceptance of diverse contemporary music. Why do you think that Hamilton, a show that incorporates rap and focuses on the founding fathers of this country, has become such a massive hit. Before I go there, here's one thing that I want to add to your last question about teaching rap before I forget it. And uh, and is that something that's feasible? Um, Absolutely. The, the other thing that I think I had going for me is that um, is my drumming background. And that gave me a really good sense of groove and of time and of cadence and of accent and of delivering something that sounds good on the ear that's rhythmic. That, that I think was some, I wouldn't have put those things together then, but I think that was something that I had a leg up on in terms of me versus any other pianist. Is that something that I was sort of attuned to um, in that way? To your question, I think, um, I love that you, that you pulled up Rent for that. And I love it for many reasons because I'm a huge sucker for that show in many, many ways. It's my dad's favorite musical, speaking of my dad. Um, but the... The other reason I love it is that Lynn cites that show as being enormously important for him as a as a budding writer when he saw it, um, because 
you know, 96 New York, he went and saw it and it looked like the world he lived in, in the late 90s in New York. It wasn't West Side Story or it wasn't a thing that takes place some other place and some other time. It was where he lives right now. And it was this, he cites it as this big light bulb moment for him of like, oh my God, I can write about anything. I can write about anything I want. And um, the rent is very influential in the in the growth of Hamilton in many ways, not least of which is its form. It's it's uh, composed through and it's a zillion hours long and it's uh, and it's a lot of music and it's uh, and they, they they have a lot in common. Um, but I also just happen to love it on a fan nerd level. I think there's a lot of reasons why Hamilton works and why Hamilton landed on us uh, as a country in the moment that it did and succeeded. I firmly believe that had Hamilton opened five years earlier, it may not have had the same impact. Um, I think that for a few reasons, and I, this might be very unpopular. I think Hamilton happened at a time when, first of all, it's not because it's a rap musical. There were other rap musicals, as you point out. You know, in the Heights for one, there was a show called Holler If You Hear Me on Broadway that was based on the musical, uh, the music of Tupac. It um, it wasn't the first to do that. Uh, so that's I don't think is part of that equation. But it happened. Uh, it came to Broadway in 2015, at a time when we were dealing with as a country, uh, a number of things that the show brings out of us, uh, the race relations in this country the way we treat women in this country, although we were still a couple years short of Me Too, but uh, but that was still part of that conversation. The role of immigrants in this country, the role of guns in this country. Those are sort of maybe the big four issues, I would say, but I, I think Hamilton deals with, with them all in different ways. And one of the things that I think the show does really well is it shows us that while those are all important discussions and hot button issues now, they were also important discussions at that time. Those are, in the story of America, those are constants. And uh, I think it touched our nerves as Americans in a particular time when we really needed to hear that. And, we, and the relevance for, I think, especially young people, but then... Uh, older people who saw that saw those comparisons was was very profound. I also think on a on a much more benign level, I also think the reason Hamilton was so successful was because of Twitter. Um, Lynn is very active on Twitter, but it's not just because of that. What Twitter meant was if you were a fan of the show and rent did not have this luxury, for instance, if you were a fan, you could write to your favorite actor, and they would write back instantly. It's not like sending fan mail anymore. You know what I mean? You could tweet at Leslie Odom Jr. and he would write back to you or, or whatever it was. And, and our cast was very accessible and highly active in that way. And so Hamilton interacted with the young generation in a really, really big way. And I think it portrayed its hip hop in a very authentic way, which is something that Lynn really cared about. Lynn will tell you, he'll be the first to tell you, that he's a huge her, huge nerd for 90s East Coast hip-hop. And the show is, like, steeped in it. That the two biggest musical influences on Hamilton are Biggie and Les Mis. 
and uh and there's arguments for that and for others but i i think it was really important to him that he treat that the, that the hip-hop in the show be treated authentically and uh carefully and not just people talking um and not in any way smoothed over or commercialized or in any way uh dumbed down you know lynn tells some story about the early days at the public theater and seeing busta rhymes in like the sixth row and he's of course in the show then and he's like oh shit well now i better do this right um i so i might i might have deviated from your question i have to ask for our listeners what is your favorite scene or song in hamilton i think my favorite uh my favorite song in the show it has changed and evolved but it's probably wait for it um I think it's so perfectly crafted and says so much and is so beautifully written and almost always so beautifully performed. Um, I also have a weird answer though, that I think that that is probably my favorite song, but my favorite uh, scene song in the show, in the context of the show might be the election of 1800 near the end. Um, and my reason for that is, is that, uh, it uses primarily musical material that we already know and brings it back in, in different ways and sort of turns it on its head and, and sort of pulls our ear as an audience that says, hey, we already know this and we already know that. And now those elements are starting to come together a little bit. And it also, um, it contains so much plot and moves, moves, moves. But this is the very nerdy thing to say. And just speaking as a true conductor, I think, um, for me, the show is in chapters. I just like have always felt it that way. And usually that's, um, I feel the applause breaks in the show as as where the chapters go. Uh, because the music, as we know, continues from top to bottom. There's no scenes the way there are in a, in a traditional musical. And for me, it's just sort of the way I always feel the show is that when the people are clapping and I turn the page, we're starting a new chapter. Um, and the last applause break in the show comes right before it with It's Quiet Uptown. And it's quiet uptown ends and there is applause. And then the election of 1800 is the beginning of this last chapter. Um, and almost always there is no applause now for, until the end of the play. And what I love about that piece is it sort of sets the ball rolling down the hill that propels us all the way to the to the final duel. You're, you're at the hottest show in the world in the center of theater in the world, I would argue and you're in the position that you always wanted to be. Do you ever pause, whether it's before the curtains open or after a show, and just say, wow, I did it? Rarely, but it happens. It does happen. I think um, my trajectory on the show was such that it took me a very long time to be comfortable doing that. You know, I, I had been... Uh, this uh, had been a rehearsal pianist for so long, first at the beginning in, in my teaching, and then I started playing dance rehearsals, and then I started subbing like I was on the other show as a keyboard player, and I started subbing as a conductor. After about a year of that, I became the associate music director of the show, and then I was there sort of full-time. And after about three years doing that job, I became the music director. And somewhere in those three years of doing the associate music director job, and maybe a little before, maybe a little after, is where I started to to really, really take that in. I remember being more, you know, uh, I more less of the, wow, I did it, and more of the, this is unusual and crazy. Um, I remember 
the first moment that sort of pulled my ear was in in right around the uh when the album came out and i remember reading a reference to hamilton in the money column of the new york times magazine i do not read the money column of the new york times magazine but it uh it it featured a thing about hamilton and i'm like well this is weird why is the times magazine money column talking about my play that i'm doing on 46th street and um I just was so struck by that. Like what it has really made its way into this thing that has nothing to do with the arts. And the fact that people in my life didn't have to ask me, so what show are you working on right now? You know, usually they would say that and I would be like, well, I'm working on a show called such and such. No. Well, it's written by such and such. Oh, well, they wrote such and no. Okay. Well, it's about da, 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 da. And um, I no longer had to do that. Now I could say I work on Hamilton and they would go, oh, I know what that is. Um, I, I think I can point to some, some, some moments where like, I finally sort of felt like I started to feel the amazingness of it a little bit. I remember particularly there was a day, uh, because of the way it had been scheduled, um, I conducted the show on the night that Lynn won the Pulitzer and, um, uh, you know, he came out at the beginning of the show, as he always does, Alexander Hamilton, and the place goes nuts. And he was still in the show then, of course. And um, the applause, the applause, the applause, and it always stopped the show. But um, that particular night, I remember, was so incredible because he had won this thing hours earlier. And here he was, you know, 15 feet from my face uh doing the thing and that that i remember was a really special moment just watching him sort of take that in and i i remember seeing it sort of in his face in a particular way of of sort of taking in that recognition and that struck me as a as a as a moment of holy cow i'm, I'm i get to be a part of something that's that's very cool and um you know it uh it is really really lucky to be there I'm, I'm very lucky to be there and I try never to lose sight of that. But, um, you know, it is, I don't know. Hamilton is by far the craziest thing that ever happened to me, but, uh, I try, I try not to let myself get a big head about it because it would make me crazy. What advice or words of encouragement would you give to younger students who want to pursue their dreams? I have two answers. The first is uh, is to try to play the long game. I think, like I sort of touched on before, especially with theater, which is unusual, I know, in the larger world of working people, um, we have the opportunity of repetition. We have the opportunity to try again tomorrow. If you have a shitty show, you can come back the next day or sometimes that night and try again. Um, and... Uh, because you played terribly one day does not ruin your career for the rest of time. And I think uh, because you had a bad experience on one gig doesn't mean that the next gig or the next project is going to be that way. So playing the long game, I think, is and being able to zoom out and try to, like, maintain a sense of perspective is really hard. And I'm very bad at it myself. But I think it's something to try to remember from time to time as much as possible. The other I tell every group of, of young musicians that I that I talk to and every group of young theater people, any chance that I get, I talk to students, that any chance that I get to talk to students, I, I say this. Um, 
is that I always say that half of the battle is how well you play your talent. What you were asking before is the talent meets skill, uh, meets luck of it all. Like how, how well you are, how good you are on your instrument or on your, on your skill. That's 50% and only 50. The other half, I say this all the time is showing up on time and being the kind of person that people want to work with again. Um, it matters that much. It matters 50%. And, uh, I always say, because if I'm trying to hire somebody and I have the choice between two folks and one is a delight and one isn't, I'm obviously hiring the delight. If the person who isn't an, a joy to work with is the better player, I'm probably still hiring the person who's a delight because I have to sit with them in the dark for three hours and play a musical together. And wouldn't you rather do that with the person who's a delight? I would. Um, it matters. It matters a great, great deal. And, you know, none of us did theater to get rich. None of us did theater because it's easy. Um, I think if I think anybody who does theater who wanted to do something that makes them a lot of money would have done something that makes them a lot of money instead. And um, so I always feel like it it should be fun. We do this because it's fun and because we love it. And um, I, so I try to make the experience as enjoyable as I can. I think that's that's a huge thing for people to know is to show up and just like be a person. Doesn't cost anything to be nice. Doesn't cost anything to say, how was your weekend? It's that that, that matters. Can we go back to when um, you're at this, this pinnacle moment and you talk about Lynn uh, winning the Pulitzer. What was the moment where you had to correct him in his own show? And did he say, did he say, I wrote this thing. What are you, what are you talking about? I don't know that I've ever had to correct him. I leave that to my boss. I leave that to Alex, but I, I can say, um, uh, I, I have had to, to like refresh him of certain things. Uh, like when I, I worked for a, a week on the, in the Heights film uh when uh like really only a week i had a very small thing to do with it but uh you know he would run over to the piano and be like how does this go and i'd be like well sir here, here's how it goes um and but what i remember you know this isn't necessarily about me teaching but i to answer your question i remember a time early on when he was still in the show the thing i noticed about him first and foremost was how good he is at separating actor hat versus composer hat and um I f remember feeling like here's a guy who wrote this entire thing by himself and it would be so easy for him to walk around the building with the attitude of you're welcome. You're all here because of me. And it couldn't have been further from the, op from the, from, it couldn't have been further from the opposite. Okay. Um, it couldn't have been more the opposite. And I remember particularly we were in some dance rehearsal and he, he's uh, playing the role and I'm playing the rehearsal. And we had stopped to work on something and we're going to start again. And he looks down the stage and he says to me, okay, where do you want to start? And I remember having this moment of, well, you wrote it, sir. Tell me, you know, but, <laughs> but I remember like being so struck by that. That was like a very generous thing for him to do to have taken off his composer hat and let the people run the room who run the room and just wait for instruction, which I thought was really classy. So going off that, obviously, he is a big deal in the theater world, in like the arts world, you know, um, you've worked with him. Most people would get like very kind of starstruck or not know, you know, how to handle that situation. But obviously, 
he is a professional, you're a professional, but when you are conducting and you know, there's certain people in the audience who has been in the audience that makes you get a little nervous. I am not usually starstruck. I, I really am not. Um, you know, Lynn does make my, my antenna go up just because like, he's that brilliant and that's smart. And I like, um, I, you know, I try to play on his level uh, just in being a human being and he knows it too. And I think he like, really likes to enjoy giving me a hard time about that. But, um, you know, to your point to all of us who, you know, uh, at the show, I think we, we try our best to just be people and, and who show up to like work on this thing and like not get in each other's way about like, you know, the starstruck element of it all. But, uh, all that to say, I'm not a very starstruck person in general. Normally, I can hear about a celebrity who comes to the show and just sort of like be excited about that. Um, there was one that threw me for a loop. There's actually two who threw me for the loop. The second is the time that I walked into my office at intermission and saw Paul McCartney. Um, and uh, and that was horrifying because now I have to go do act two. Um, Would have been fine had the play been over. Uh, but now I have to like land the plane. Um, and I remember particularly walking into the pit and seeing our bass player, who of course is this huge Paul fan. And I had this moment of, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. I can't tell you who's out there. Um, and I had to wait till the end. But uh, the real story is about my first time conducting Hamilton. Um, and it was uh, the same thing I described earlier, where when you're a sub conductor, you don't get rehearsal. Even when you're the conductor, you, you still have to like learn it and do all this homework and practice and practice and practice and ask a zillion questions and then just show up and fly the plane. This was very early on in Hamilton's life. The album had come out two days earlier and um, I was the first sub conductor to do it. I was the third person to conduct the show and the other two had been with it this whole time. And um, I uh, was told right before the show that there was somebody famous out in the audience. And did I want to know who it was? And I'm like, of course not. I don't want to, I don't want to know that. And I realized that I was going to be spending the entire play wondering who it was instead of like focusing on doing a good job. And so I went to my boss and I asked him, listen, is it someone musically famous or just someone famous? And my, I remember thinking like, if it's, you know, Johnny Depp, I don't care. I'm already so nervous. Like that's not going to put me over the top. Uh, but if it's like Yo-Yo Ma, we have a problem. And um, my boss says to me, well, it's just someone famous. It's not someone musically famous. I said, okay, well then who is it? And he said, do you want to know? I said, sure. He says, it's the first lady, which at that time, of course, is Ms. Obama. And um, I was horrified. And uh, now it's like one, two, you know, 257 and the play is going to start in three minutes and the punchline of the story i'll tell this very fast but the punchline of the story is this um i got up on the stage and uh, or in the podium to conduct the show and when the show begins you the conductor are waiting for the actor playing aaron burr to walk out on stage and when he gets to a certain point on the set you start the music so all that to say you take the cue from the actor and uh I get up there and the stage manager says to me, listen, we're going to do the cell phone announcement and then we're going to go to the blackout and then we're going to hold because she's going to come in with her secret service detail. 
and then we're going to wait and then we're going to start the show. I'm like, fine. So we get the cell phone announcement, all the lights go out and now we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And you can imagine what this feels like, just like my skin crawls when I tell the story. And um, you know how like in those moments, uh, time passes super slowly, you know, 10 seconds feels like, you know, da, da, da. I found out later two full minutes went by in pitch dark in the silence. And finally she gets seated and out comes Leslie Odom Jr. And we started the play. And um, I, uh, I remember snippets of that first show, but I remember being so horrified that uh, Madam First Lady was was in the house and I had to like not get up. And um, I was really hoping to meet her afterwards so that I could say, do you know what you have put me through? Uh, but that was not to be. That's the long version of that story. That's great. Um, so you're again, you're at the top of uh, musical theater. How do you go to the next play where your friends are going to say, what show was that? What's that about? How do you go mm. from Hamilton to the next thing? Oof. Well, good news is my gig at Hamilton uh, the sort of the life of a music director in general, excuse me, um, is such that you can take some hot side projects. And I've been able to, it hasn't been all Hamilton all the time. I've been able to take on a little thing here, a little thing there that are short term or long term. And I've been able to do some other things that I'm really proud of that I'm really happy with. The benefit of being on a show like Hamilton is that, uh, I get to be a little choosy because I've got this really lucky, constant, uh, reliable gig this year accepted, um, you know, which is unusual, unheard of in my world to have a gig that is going to last for a while. So I get to be a little choosy in the things that I do on the side um, to pick things that I'm interested in. So you ask, how do I go to the next thing? The thing that makes me leave Hamilton, you know, I'm able to like I say, take on side hustles. I'm also in a place where if the right thing comes along, I can take a little leave of absence and go do a little show, a show somewhere else and come back. It's very, very flexible and it's very lucky. But the thing that's going to make me leave Hamilton is either going to be two things. A show that I have worked on for a really long time that I've maybe developed as an arranger and music supervisor and really sort of nurtured and worked on from the ground up that I really care about that is going to be really fulfilling that I know is going to be something that is as enjoyable and as meaningful as Hamilton or more. Um, when that comes to Broadway someday, that's going to be the thing that, that makes me leave it. Or when I just get sick and tired of Hamilton, which may come sooner. Um, one of the many, many small silver linings of, of this time, this awful time that we're in is that like, we all got a Hamilton break. Uh, and, you know, there's a very nice thing to be said about that kind of intermission that otherwise we wouldn't ever have gotten. Um, there's a lot of things that are bad about this time, needless to say. Um, but one of the things that's not is that I get to sort of refresh my brain a little bit. Um, so I fully expect to be able to stay for a while now, whereas I feel like my Hamiltonian burnout would have happened way sooner, if not for this year. Um, but you ask a really good question because I can't 
just jump onto whatever comes my way next. Um, Hamilton has really spoiled me because it has shown me that there is something that is that meaningful, not just to me, but to the world at large that has meaning in, in and is making an impact, not just in the world outside, but specifically in the lives of young people um, who love the show and, and latch onto the show and for whom it inspires them. Like, my God, what musicals do that uh, on that scale? Um, that is meaningful. Not to mention it's hard and it keeps me engaged because it's hard. And like, I'm still trying to play a good performance of Hamilton. Maybe someday I will like, that keeps me energized. Um, so it sort of has to be a show that has all of that in, in a cocktail. Um, it's a really high bar. Great. Well, we always close with uh, the same three questions. Uh, so I'll start with the first. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra that you live by, uh, what would that be? Okay. I'm glad that you asked this question because either you're going to love this or you're going to roll your eyes at me. And, uh, I think I, I forgive me in advance, but I think it, I think it's what's next. Um, you Love know, it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, it. we all, we know we, we, or at least we're about to that. I'm, I'm this big West wing nerd, as I know, are you, as I, and, um, the West wing has seen me through all the ups and downs in my life and the lives of many of my people in my world. I have entire friendships predicated entirely on the West Wing, um, plural friendships. And um, it's uh, a sickness, but um, one of the things that, you know, just to connect it, one of the things that I love about Hamilton is how um, steeped it is uh, in the West Wing like Lynn is a huge fan of the show. Tommy Kale is a huge fan of the show and they cite the TV show in many, many ways in their writing of it. And um, doing Hamilton in many ways is the closest I'll ever get to working on the West wing. And um, it's not entirely very far either. <laughs> and um, the show inspires me. The show lifts me up. The show uh, shows me in many ways uh, the best of what we can be. And one of the things that I love about that, what's next trope is that uh, no matter what happens in that universe, the eye is always on tomorrow. The eye is always on uh, what's the next chapter going to be. Um, keeps you moving forward, keeps you uh, engaged. The second question we ask every guest is, if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? So I know I'm probably supposed to say like my 10th birthday or something, um, but I think the, uh, the day I would choose is actually my first day conducting Kinky Boots. Um, and the reason why is that I had a lot of fun and it was a blast and it was like a, like I said, a dream day to conduct a Broadway show for the first time. And I alluded to this, I know, when we talked about it earlier, but um, I was so focused on doing a good job and on doing well enough that I would be asked back a second time. I was so focused on that prize, on not embarrassing myself, on not uh, ruining the play, basically. I think I did very little enjoying of it and of soaking that in. It took me years after that to feel sort of comfortable spending 30 seconds like enjoying my job. And, um, 
conducting kinky boots for the first time was an enormous thing for me it was a big day i remember when the show was over in the dress in the backstage but in the hallway of dressing rooms one of the actors was just like congratulating me and he knew it was my broadway conducting debut and he's he was like an older gentleman and he said to me um you're, you're when your head hits the pillow tonight just know that you did a good that you did a good job and just congratulate yourself and um i remember just sort of like being struck by that the sort of like you know, in many ways, he needed to point it out to me uh, that, that I wasn't really going to get there on my own. And um, I just wish I had uh, relaxed a lot more and just sort of ridden the roller coaster and let myself uh, be excited about that rather than so tense. So the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? Okay, so I'm really angry about this question because how could I possibly, possibly choose it? And I refuse to make it anything from Hamilton because I can't possibly. I'm going to reserve the right to change this answer, you know, a week from now or a year from now. So this is a this is a how I feel today answer. Because um, I think like all of us, we, you know, our music tastes change. But I'm on this kick right now with the musical City of Angels, which uh, if you know it or if you don't, it uh, came out in the 80s and it's a film noir musical. Um, and so it's like this very jazzy, sexy, very hip kind of thing. And the opening of that show is this kicking, driving, uh, badass, big band kind of like uh, game on kind of prologue that's mostly instrumental and it uh it is uh always energizing for me i don't know if it really like fits me necessarily as my theme song i don't i i don't think i'm nearly that cool but uh i will allow it to be my um my the, the one i choose it's not the, the beginning of it because it starts in this very sort of like languid way but give it like 40 seconds in and then the beat kicks in and that's that's where we'll start Great. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go and hear your theme song as well as the other guests in a curated playlist for them. Excellent. Just don't, just listeners should know, like not to give up in the first 30 seconds. That's, that's not really what we're talking about. Well, thank you. This has been a great conversation and we really appreciate you diving into your career, um, where everything, you know, has led you and then all things Hamilton, of course. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it is a treat to, to be with you. Thank you for your amazing questions and your patience, my God. And, uh, and for encouraging me truly to like talk about the uncomfortable things like success, which makes my skin crawl, but, uh, is important. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm, I love the idea that, uh, I represent the like weird theater kid in in not only this conversation, but in this series of conversations, you know, most a lot of the time I'm asked to talk to theater people or to talk to music people. And so it is really fun to think about how our weird artsy lives might or might not, but might translate to the world outside. So thank you for that opportunity. 